I'm Carolyn. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, and the first thing I want to say is thank you to Greg um, for asking me to share my story today. And I also want to thank St. Aidan's, this group. Um, I have heard again and again that when it was a face-to-face -face meeting, there were about seven people who went to that meeting. And I refer to them in my prayers in the morning to the Magnificent Seven. Um, because, and I think there are probably more of them now, but who, who went to that meeting, but the magnificent seven plus a few more. Thank you so much. Um, look, just look right now. There are 62 people in this meeting. Who knew? Uh, it's just amazing to me. Um, and I also just want to start my share today, um, by expressing gratitude to two people who have been in my life, um, through the worst parts of my life and some of the best parts of my life. And they have seen me face to face. Um, so they're kind of a li living witness to my story today. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now for me. And um, you know, I'll try to make sure that I leave lots of time for people to share. But the first thing I want to say is um, welcome to the newcomers. Uh, even if you haven't identified yourself as a newcomer, I want to say one thing to you, and that's that there is hope. And if the one thing that comes across in my story to you is hope, um, then I will have succeeded in whatever mission you know my higher power has for me today in sharing my story. Um, I came to Overeaters Anonymous on September 29th, 1987, when I was 24 years old in Salem, Ohio. Um, and I was 222 pounds. I wore a size 34 skirt. And I was 12-stepped by a woman called Ruthie, who literally saved my life. Um, and, you know, if I had one word to tell you what it was like for me, the word I would use is hell. Um, that is what it was like for me um, up until the time when I walked through the doors of this program. And so in the first 10 years of my program, um, while I was abstinent, um, I married, I gave birth to a child, I was widowed by suicide, and I got fired by my job, uh, from my job, and I stayed abstinent through all of those things. I believe today that I have a daily reprieve from compulsive overeating. You will never, well, maybe you should say never, but you'll never hear me say that I'm a recovered compulsive overeating, uh, overeater. For me, it's a, it's a daily reprieve. Um, I moved countries back and forth four times in recovery and stayed abstinent. Um, I've met the best friends of my life in this program. I came very close to bankruptcy, but for somebody in this program who paid all my bills for me after my husband committed suicide, um, I started my, the first OA meeting in, in the south of England, um, apart from Bristol, which was down the coast and there were meetings in London. This all happened to me in the first 10 years of my recovery. I can handle the big stuff. Um, I can get through the big stuff abstinently. What I had to learn how to do in this program is how to get through the little stuff abstinently. That was where my biggest challenge came in terms of trying to figure out how not to use food. Um, so a crisis situation for me is pretty easy to get through. It's when nothing much is happening that I'm in trouble. Um, and so in the sort of second decade of my recovery, um, 
you know, by then I had released all the weight. And, uh, well, I did that really in the first year of my recovery, released all of the weight, and then had to learn how to live in a normal body, which was, for me, my biggest fantasy. But the reality was terrifying to me. And the reason it was terrifying is because I didn't know what, I didn't know how to be. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to be. And that's why this program is so different to any other program that I had experienced before then, because I didn't know that in, in things that I had tried before that, I didn't know that there was a spiritual and emotional component to it. I knew that I ate no matter what I was feeling, and that's how I coped. Um, but I didn't know that there was kind of these other components to the program. And for me, this is really what made the difference and is what has helped me to stay abstinent for all these years. Um, so I got my physical recovery and I started doing sport and I started taking risks and trying new things. And I won two tennis titles um, in my tennis club as a result of this is somebody whose thighs rub together every day. This is somebody who um, who who just felt the emotional pain of overeating so much that it's kind of almost impossible for me to put into words. Um, I could only shop at places like Lane Bryant. If for any of you who are old enough to know what that is, there were no things like size 18s in normal clothing stores. You had to go to special shops to get clothes. And so I went from being a really skinny kid to in my teenage years and then in my college years to being obese. This is a progressive disease. I have been told this again and again, and my own life experience demonstrates that that is the case. Um, I went from having no problems with food to crossing the line that is discussed in the big book. Once you cross that line into addiction, you can't go back again. So all the fantasies that I had about looking like I did when I was younger had to be thrown out the window because I couldn't go back to that. I had crossed the line into addiction. And for me, I think that's a really important thing to say. Um, so I had all of this freedom um, in my kind of, in my physical recovery, and I worked really hard on the spiritual and emotional stuff too. Um, and the 12 steps really taught me, I worked them with a sponsor, um, taught me how to, how to, how to deal with my character defects, um, to realize that I didn't have to carry shame for the rest of my life, that I could actually say to somebody, I'm sorry for what I did to you, and then make restitution and not do that again. Um, and I just had never heard of anything. What the hell does that got to do with food? That's what I used to think. But I learned through, um, through you, through people in the program who demonstrated to me you know, that's one of the things the big book says, that people don't want to hear us talking about what we're going to do again and again and again. They want a demonstration. So for me, what what you modeled to me as people in recovery was how to do this. I didn't know how to do it. And I had a fantastic sponsor who really worked with me and told me how to do that. My first sponsor went back out again. Um, I don't know what happened to her, but she is in my head every day. <laughs> Um, and I'll be grateful to her for the rest of my life. Um, so all kinds of things have happened to me in my recovery. Uh, so what happened is I, I was 12-stepped by Ruthie when I was at my rock bottom. And um, 
You know, she gave me a very simple way to work this program. I said, how do you do it? She said, go to meetings, eat three meals a day with nothing in between and identify what your binge foods are. Well, of course, my head wanted to start complicating it straight away. Oh, but I do this, but I can do this with food, but I could do this, but I could do that. And, you know, Ruthie said to me, Carolyn, you know what your binge foods are. You know what they are. You know what you go for straight away every time. Those are your binge foods, and those are what you have to eliminate. So three meals a day with nothing in between and eliminate your binge foods. Right, okay, I think I can do that. I walked out of that meeting that night, and from that day to this, I followed that guidance with, of course, some adjustments. But my absolute is no sugar. And through the grace of my higher power, I haven't picked up sugar in all of these years of being in recovery. But that's because I work the steps and I work the program and I, I work really hard at um, challenging myself and being challenged by other people. Um, and sometimes that can be really hard for me. You know, the people that I often want to tell to, to, to go fly a kite are the ones that I really need to be listening to. Um, in the program, if somebody irritates me um, by something they say in a meeting, it almost always means that there's something there that I need to hear. Um, and I am at a point now where I actually laugh at myself because I know that if something irritates me, it's probably something I need to hear. Um, so, you know, I just kept coming back to meetings. I told you that I changed countries. When I moved to England with one year of recovery, um, that was because I married an Englishman, um, there weren't any meetings. And um, I came armed with a kind of, there were meetings, but not in my area. And I came with a kind of printout of OA meetings and was basically told to, to, to go and try to find those meetings. And so I did. And there's one thing I can remember very vividly, and that is my husband drove me to Oxford, which was about a two-hour drive from where I lived, uh, for a seven o'clock meeting. And it was supposed to be in this convent. And I can remember knocking on the door of this convent um, to, to go to this OA meeting, and nobody came and nobody came. And then this door opened, and there was a nun standing there. And she said to me, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here for the OA meeting. And she said, the what? And I said, the OA meeting. And she said, oh, um, is that the meeting where kind of people who, who do things with food go to? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, that, that closed years ago. And I can remember just standing there and the tears were running down my face because I was so desperate for a meeting. And she just looked at me with this compassion in her eyes and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's going to be okay. And that was it. I walked away, got back into the car, and my husband drove me back down to our house, and I didn't get a meeting that night. But you know what? I didn't eat either. So in that time that I was looking for a meeting, willing to go to any lengths, um, what I got was, you know, a chance to not be using food and then to just come back and know that it was going to be okay. So willing to go to any lengths for me then meant driving to Bristol, which is a city, again, about two hours down the road. And there was a meeting there. And I was going there on Wednesday nights um, just to, to get some recovery. And there was a guy in there who was in OA and in AA. And he said to me, you know, you've got to stop driving down here at night um, to come to these meetings. I think you should start your own meeting. And I said, I can't do that. 
I've only got one year of abstinence. Are you kidding me? And he said, why not? Um, and so he gave me my first for today book and he really encouraged me to write to the world service office and get a meeting format and start a meeting. Um, and there are two people in this meeting today who have been to that meeting, one of whom was one of the first ones to ever come to it. Um, so, you know, it's pretty amazing to, to think that, you know, somebody like me who had no confidence, no ability, and I couldn't do anything for two days in a row, um, was actually able to start a meeting. Um, and that was pretty amazing. So just I wanted to share some things for with you about what it's like now. It's hard to cover 33 years um, in 15 minutes. But um, I suppose I wanted to kind of just say some things about progression of the disease. Um, and uh, I like what it says in the OA 12 and 12. It says that... Um, our eating and attitudes towards food are not normal. We have this disease. Um, and I think for me, if I'm truly prepared to admit that I'm an addict, then I have to accept that my disease will progress if I take the first compulsive bite. Um, and it says in the 12 and 12, you'll lose the control no matter how hard you try. Um, and what happened to me is I lost control of the control. So I don't think it matters if you're a restrictor, if you're somebody who purges, um, or if you just compulsively overeat or do all three of those things. For me, every time, I didn't binge and purge, and I wasn't anorexic. But every time that I used food, I said, the next time, I'm not going to do this. The pain is too great. And you know what? I woke up the next day, and I did it again. And then you do it again. And it's this vicious cycle. Then I started to withdraw and go underground and started hiding the fact that I was eating. I never liked talking about what I ate. Um, I knew that I was powerless, but I didn't know what to do about that. And I really love what it says here, because if I'm ever tempted to restrict in the program, you know, after I lost all my weight, I just found those moments when I thought, do you know what? Maybe I could cut back and just eat carrots. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. So the stuff was in my head to see if I could just lose a little bit more weight. But because Ruthie had trained me to read the literature, one of the things that says, and I've written down some notes here, before we found OA, every diet or period of control was followed by a period of uncontrolled eating. Um, and that scared me. And because that scared me, you know, I was able to avoid that. Um, and it says this is because our malady was not just physical in nature, it was emotional and spiritual as well. Um, I was obsessed with food when I was in my disease. Like many people talk about here, I couldn't be here to listen to you. I couldn't go out to eat with anybody else and be present. I wasn't able to be in your company. I didn't really have any friends by the end anyway. I just, I couldn't even maintain friendships with people. I couldn't keep a job for very long. I've been in the job I'm in now for 21 years. I couldn't do anything for more than a couple of days. I just literally sabotaged everything I touched. I went for perfection. And then when I couldn't carry on being perfect, I pulled the curtain down on it. Talks about that in the literature too. Um... So I just, I couldn't, I couldn't have relationships. 
Um, my university years were ruined because of my eating. My high, late high school years were ruined because of that. But as uh, kind of in my late 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, I got to have a life. And the program has changed my thinking. So here are some examples for you just as I close up. I thought I didn't want to have kids. I thought pregnancy makes people fat and that kids are just a burden. My higher, plow, my higher power had other plans for me. Now I have a 30-year-old son who taught me about love. I didn't get fat, by the way, um, when I got pregnant. Why? Because I had this program and I had all of you. And there were people who had gone before me who had had children. And they told me that I didn't have to pick up the food, I wasn't eating for two, and I could be abstinent while pregnant. I thought if I was slim, I would turn into a nymphomaniac. I started eating in the first place because of being a sexual woman. I felt a lot of shame about that. And so I just ate till I was a size where I wouldn't have to deal with that. Instead, I learned how to love and to be loved. And for me, um, being loved is something very sacred and it's very important. And I treasure and value my body. My mother told me that you couldn't trust men or most people, and OA has given me all the friends in my friendship circle today. Um, I also have, I've been in a, a marriage to a man for 10 years who loves my body, loves me, and loves me for who I am. So, you know, the program teaches me to undo all of those things that I believed. And I guess what I want to leave with you is this. I do not believe that relapse I don't think relapse is inevitable. Um, I don't think you have to expect that. But I think it's there waiting for you. Somebody told me that you're only one step away from the ditch. And I like to think about that a lot. You know, I believe today that I'm only one step away from the ditch. And I can tell you that before one of my friends told me about this St. Aidan's meeting, I was one step away from the ditch. I was so close to relapse, I can taste it. And it really scared me. Um, why? Because I let my spiritual and emotional discipline slip. Um, and that is for me, you know, you've heard me say this in this meeting before. Um, the first compulsive bite is the last step in the process. Um, but I have learned such a lot from people in relapse, people I love. They talk openly to me um, about how they feel. And they've been gracious enough to, sh to share the pain of relapse. And because they've been prepared to share their pain, somehow they've helped prevent me from going there. Um, so if you're afraid of people in relapse because you think it's a contagious disease that you're going to catch, I would like to challenge your thinking about that and say that, you know, that's not the case. Um, I'd say that one of the things that works really well for me is to think about a spiritual bank account, to invest in that spiritual bank account. And the way I do that is in periods when I can go to as many meetings as possible, I go there. In periods when I can talk to as many people in the program as I can, I go there, I sponsor people, and I'm sponsored, and I really top up that spiritual bank account so that if there are times when I can't get to a meeting or something is something with work is really busy, I can withdraw from that spiritual bank account. I can withdraw funds. But the thing is, I have to just keep topping that up again and again. So investing in my spiritual bank account is really important. And finally, I just want to say this is a cunning, baffling, and powerful disease. 
And for me, complacency is really dangerous. Um, so the only way out of this disease for me is to walk right through the middle. If I walk around the, the outside of it, I just go in circles. But walking through the middle of that pain is really what makes the difference. I've lost two people that I have loved to suicide in this program. And I haven't given up my abstinence as a result of that. The only way out is through. Um, I love the bit that says, talk to each other, reason things out, but let there be no gossip or criticism. Let us walk together um, with love in this program. And I just don't believe that you need to go to thousands and thousands of meetings in order to be able to recover. I have, I can prove that through my own experience that there are people in the world who actually aren't able to, to find face to face meetings, you know, one every day, two every day, three every day. But look what's happened with this technological world. We have Zoom now. So we have lots of choice. And, you know, I don't take that choice for granted. I'm talking to you today because of the Magnificent Seven um, who made this meeting possible. And I just want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And please, newcomers, know you're not alone. There's hope for you. Thank you.